Welcome to session five, How We Change the Doctrine of Sanctification. Again, my name is C.B. Etter, and um, we just want to just let you know how grateful we are for you um, going through our new members course outlines. We're so excited for what God's doing in your lives and praying for you. We're so looking forward to our future together in our local church and, and the part that God's going to have you play in it with us. So we're so excited, so glad to be saved, and so glad that, you know, as Christians now who are born again, uh, those of us who have repented of our sins and trusted in Jesus, that God calls us to um, a holy life where he, by the power of the Holy Spirit, conforms us more and more into the image of Jesus. And that's what we're going to be looking at here in this ses- session on the doctrine of sanctification. The question can kind of be, well, great, I'm, I'm saved, but what now? And Peter gives us the answer in the second letter of Second uh, Peter 3, verse 16. Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We're called to grow. We're called to grow in our holiness. We're called to grow in our righteousness. And we're called just to grow in our sanctification um, unto the Lord throughout our Christian life. And that's a process. And that's what we're going to be looking at during this session. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for this session and help us really to grow more in our understanding of what it means to grow more and more into the image of your Son by the power of the Holy Spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's look at point one, the goal of our salvation. J.I. Packer writes, In reality, holiness is the goal of our redemption. As Christ died in order that we may be justified, so we are justified in order that we may be sanctified and made holy. Yeah, that's so true. Being made holy, being um, progressively more and more conformed into the image of Jesus Christ um, is really a vital, vital truth in relation to our Christian lives. Man's problem is sin, and it is sin that keeps us from being and doing all that God intends for us. Um, At regeneration, when we're born again, the the power of sin is broken, and we're made alive in Christ. Um, In justification, the penalty of sin is removed as we're declared righteous in Christ. Um, And, you know, that also pertains to the the doctrine of propitiation, where um, God's wrath against our sin is satisfied and uh, we have had the penalty of sin removed. In sanctification, the pollution of sin is progressively removed as we are made holy in Christ. Holy means that we're set apart for God and the conduct that befits those who are so separated unto God. To be holy is God's goal for his people. Words like transforming, renewing, conforming, maturing, and growing, they're all used in the New Testament to describe the process of being made holy. And although we will never reach perfection in this life, we are called to make every effort to live a holy life. Um, But one of the neat things to remember is that we will be completely sinless in heaven. When we get to heaven, we'll never sin again, and we really will be completely perfected. We're declared righteous now, but we will be perfectly righteous and holy uh, when we get to heaven. Uh, But throughout our Christian lives, we are in the process of being made more and more 
um, into the image of God's Son, Jesus Christ. And that's a process that really is your lifelong. First Peter 1, 15 and 16 says, But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do, for it is written, Be holy, because I am holy. And you'll see other passages of Scripture that say, you know, come out from them and be separate. You know, we're called to come out from the world and to be different from the world. Um, our lives should look differently because we're Christians than the world around us. And this is a real calling we have and, and one that we really need to embrace as Christians. It's vital because as Second Timothy 1.9 says, God has saved us and he's called us to a holy life. And God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life, First Thessalonians 4.7. Looking at point A, our model for Jesus is holiness, um, for holiness is Jesus himself. No single word describes Jesus more than holy. We're to follow his example in both attitude and action. Paul called this being imitators of God, and John said that we should walk as Jesus did. And Jesus simply said, follow me. I love that. Look at Romans eight twenty nine. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son, so that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And um, Colossians 3, 9 and 10, you have taken off your old self with its practices and you put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. Jerry Bridges writes, the holiness of Jesus was more than simply the absence of actual sin. It was also a perfect conformity to the will of his father. And when we're sanctified, there is an increasing conformity to the will of the Father in our lives as well. We grow in our holiness. And um, you've heard the acronym WWJD, what would Jesus do? And increasingly in our Christian lives, that really should be um, seen more and more evident in our actual lives, that what would Jesus do? And uh, the type of obedience that Jesus walked in when he lived his sinless life here on earth for us, we're going to increasingly, as we grow and mature as Christians, we're going to see us also doing what Jesus would do in those situations. We're going to be holy and righteous in our conduct, um, never forgetting all the while that the Christian life uh, never, never, ever stops remembering WDJD or what did Jesus do which is even more important because it recognizes that what did Jesus do? That question is he died on the cross for all of my sins. And because of that death on the cross for my sins, I now have the power of the Holy Spirit. I have the Holy Spirit himself dwelling within me to now enable me and to empower me to do what Jesus would do increasingly. And like like we said earlier, you'll never do that perfectly in your Christian life. We still have remaining sin or indwelling sin, which we'll look at a little bit later in the session. But we really are going to grow in just seeing Christ's character shining out from our life more and more as we grow and mature as Christians. Point B, our motive for holiness is love for God. Yeah, that's right. We should never forget as we grow to know his love and appreciate what he has done for us, we will also grow in our motivation to live a life that is holy and pleasing to him. Or as Paul says, to live a life worthy of the calling that we've received. Um, Romans 12, 1 and 2 says, Therefore I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, 
to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, and then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. We need to recognize, like 1 John 5, 3 says, this is love for God to obey his commandments, and his commands are not burdensome. You see in passages like 1 John 5, 3 that love for God and obedience to God are linked. Um, We really are called to love the Lord, and in loving him, um, we are meant to demonstrate that love through our obedience to the Lord. Oswald Chambers says, When once you realize all that it costs God to forgive you, you will be held as in a vice constrained by the love of God. You'll want to live a life worthy of the calling that you've received. And increasingly, as the days go on, J.I. Packer says, From the plan of salvation I learned that the true driving force in authentic Christian living is, and ever must be, not the hope of gain, but the heart of gratitude. All ventures in holiness go rotten at the core when gain in any form, rather than gratitude, motivates them. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, if you remember that passage in Romans 12 we just looked at, in view of God's mercy, we should offer our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. You know, we can't pay God back. That's not, that should never be our mentality to, to pay him back. Um, but we should live lives of gratitude, um, keeping God's mercy in view and to be motivated by great love for God because he first loved us and to want to live a life pleasing to him because of how deeply he has loved us. Secondly, let's look at the battle for holiness in a little bit more detail. Sinclair Ferguson writes, The nature of sin cannot be changed. Only the destruction of its dominion by regeneration and the erosion of its influence and sanctification will protect us from its power and presence. As as unbelievers, we were slaves to sin. We were unwilling and unable to not sin. And when we were born again, we were regenerated and life, brand new life was breathed into us by the power of the Holy Spirit. We were freed from the power of sin. We became willing and able to not sin. So why then do we still sin? Although sin is dethroned as the ruler of our life, it's not destroyed or removed as a factor in our lives. We are free from sin's dominion, but not its presence and influence yet. That's going to happen when we get to heaven. But for right now, um, the, the old phrase is that the dominion of sin has been broken, but the presence of sin remains. Our quest for holiness is not unopposed. The remaining influence of sin is known as the flesh or the sinful nature or indwelling sin. The sinful word we, the sinful world we live in and the devil who opposes us take advantage of the situation to tempt us into all manner of sin. If you look at the passage in Galatians 5, 16 and 17, the word of God says, So I say, live by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. For the sinful nature desires what is contrary to the Spirit. And the Spirit what is contrary to the sinful nature, they are in conflict with each other so that you do not do 
what you want. There's a battle that's going on inside where um, we see that the sinful nature that still remains within Christians desires what's contrary to the Spirit. The Holy Spirit lives inside of Christians. Every single Christian, the Holy Spirit lives within their hearts. And the Spirit is doing battle. Um, and we see there that the Spirit uh, is in conflict with the flesh, and the flesh in conflict with the Spirit, so that you do not do what you want. You want to obey God, but you still find it a real struggle a real battle, and that's the battle for holiness that exists within every single one of our lives, even as Christians. It, it, but the good news is, as Christians, we have the Holy Spirit living within us, and that's the good news that it's... The old quote was that the, the flesh is tirelessly resisting the supremacy of the Spirit, John Owen wrote that regeneration makes man's heart a battlefield where the flesh tirelessly disputes the supremacy of the spirit. R.C. Sproul says, in one sense, life doesn't begin to get complicated until one becomes a Christian. When we are born of the spirit, we are born anew into a fierce struggle between the old man and the new man. It's so true. Before we were saved, all we did was just go with the flow, and the flow was into the direction of sin um, and we just kind of floated downstream in the direction of sin because that's all our hearts wanted to do and could do. But when you become a Christian, all of a sudden it's like you're moving upstream against the current, and the current's still pushing against you. But now, by the grace of God, your feet have touched bottom, and you are walking against the current by the power of the Spirit. But you still feel the, the, the effect of the world flowing up against you and resisting you as you're trying to walk upstream, if you will, following Jesus Christ. I love that illustration. If you've ever been down at the beach and you've uh, gone into the ocean uh, during uh, where there's currents, like you'll go out about, you know, 100 yards and you'll stand where the waves are crashing and sometimes you'll you'll look back at your beach blanket and you'll say, oh, okay, I'm right in front of it right now, but then as you kind of look back into the ocean water and stand there, you think you're standing still, but you look back a few minutes later and you realize, oh my goodness, I'm, I've, I've drifted away from being straight in front of my blanket. I've drifted down the beach uh, 50 yards. How did that happen? Well, that's because there, there really is a, a resistance and there's a, there's a pool, there's a current, and we constantly are walking against that current as Christians and experiencing... Growth and holiness and righteousness is like that, where it's just not uh, just this simple, easy thing. We feel resistance in our uh, sinful nature to growth and, and following Jesus Christ. But the good news is, is it's the Spirit who has the supremacy. And we really have experienced that the dominion of sin has been broken. So the presence of sin still remains. But the good news is, is you know, the flesh isn't just... Uh, waging war against the Spirit, like Galatians 5 says. The Spirit, the Holy Spirit living within us, is also waging war against our flesh. They're in conflict with one another. And, um, and But the good news is, is that we do have now the Holy Spirit within us resisting the, the desires that are within us still to follow the sinful nature. And I'm so thankful for that, aren't you? 
Well, let's look at the process of holiness, sanctification, uh, point three. Let's look at sanctification defined. Sanctification is the continuing work of God in the life of the believer, making him or her actually holy. It's a process in which one's moral condition is brought into conformity with one's legal status before God. So we are, our legal status before God is that we are perfectly righteous. We've been declared righteous with the righteousness of Jesus Christ as a free gift of grace. We've, we've had it imputed to us. But the wonderful thing about sanctification is the lifelong process where we're actually made holy. And that's the uh, point one there. That Remember, it's a process. We don't become instantly perfect when you become a Christian, but we become progressively more and more holy as we cooperate with the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Point two, we actually become holy. In justification, we're declared righteous. In sanctification, we grow in actual righteousness, overcoming various manifestations of sin like lying, pride, selfishness, lust, impurity, all kinds of sin that, that used to just dominate us. Now we are overcoming that by the power of the Holy Spirit and through grace-motivated effort. And we're becoming more like Jesus in our attitudes and actions. So God has saved us, and now he's conforming us more into the image of his Son. Point three, remember this. It's a work of grace. Many make the mistake of thinking that we're saved by grace, but then that we become holy by our own efforts um, and our own efforts alone. Nothing could be further from the truth We are regenerated and justified by grace, and we are sanctified by grace as well. Grace is necessary in both cases, and grace is unmerited in both cases. The only difference is that in regeneration, or when we're born again, we are totally passive. But in sanctification, we we actively cooperate with the Holy Spirit in receiving and responding to God's grace to us. Grace meets us in our unworthiness and declares us accepted by God. But it also meets us in our inadequacy to strengthen and supply us for holy living. Henry Dubose defined grace in this context as all the spiritual resources that are at the disposal are at the disposal of Christians through the redeeming work of Christ and the gracious presence of the Holy Spirit. Uh, Philippians 2, 12 and 13 says, Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. John fifteen five says, I am the vine, you are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. And we must remember that we need the power of God. And thank goodness we have the power of God to help us with this. Titus 2, 11 and 12 says, for the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, and it teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. Jerry Bridges writes, Though the power for godly character comes from Christ, the responsibility of developing and displaying that character is ours. We are dependent on God to enable us to do what we are responsible to do. John Owen writes, the duties God requires of us are not in proportion to the strength we possess in ourselves. Rather, they are proportional to the resources available to us in Christ. We do not have the ability in ourselves to accomplish the least of God's tasks. This is the law of grace. When we recognize it is impossible for us to perform a duty in our own strength, 
we will discover the secret of its accomplishment. But alas, this is a secret we often fail to discover. Yeah, without Jesus, we can do nothing. We need his power. And the good news is, is the Holy Spirit does work powerfully within us to sanctify us and, and help us to become more and more holy and righteous. Uh, the action, point B, of the Holy Spirit precedes any action on our part and makes our actions possible. So although we usually aren't aware of his activity, the Holy Spirit's, we can be sure that if we are becoming more holy, he's the one behind us. So true. The only thing that's good in me is because of God and because of his power, and we totally can give all the glory to him for any change we see in our lives. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, And we who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory are being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Jerry Bridges writes, His work lies behind our work and makes our work possible. Again, related to the doctrine of sanctification, Charles Hodge writes, He is also predominantly called the Holy Spirit to indicate both his nature and operations. He's absolutely holy in his nature and the cause of holiness in all creatures. Uh, John Calvin writes, The only good we do is what he does in us. It's not that we do nothing ourselves with sanctification, but that we act only when we have been acted upon, in other words, under the direction and influence of the Holy Spirit. Charles Hodge writes again, uh, the, set, the sacred writers constantly recognize the fact that the freest and most spontaneous acts of men, their inward states and the outward manifestations of those states, when good, are due to the secret influence of the Spirit of God, which eludes our consciousness. So we see from Philippians 2, 12 and 13, that he does his work in two ways. Uh, he works through our wills. The Holy Spirit makes us aware and convicted of our sins, He gives us a hatred for evil and a love for good. He helps us to delight in obedience and inspires our love for God, which rightly motivates all our efforts. Uh, Jeremiah 31.33 says, I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. Ezekiel 36.26 and 27 says, I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. You see God operating in our will. It's God who works in you, both to will and to act according to his good purpose, like Philippians 2.13 says. Um, Point two, he works to help us act. The Holy Spirit brings forth spiritual fruit in our lives, and he helps us to mortify. That means to kill the flesh, and that word mortify or kill the flesh or kill the sinful nature comes from Romans 8, verse 13. Um, So he he helps us to mortify the flesh, to resist temptation, to put off sin, and to put on righteousness. Romans 8, 1 through 13 describes that uh, call and that process in the Christian life. But Romans 8, 13 says, If you, by the Spirit, put to death the misdeeds of the flesh, you will live. So if you by the Spirit, put to death the misdeeds of the flesh. That's a great verse talking about the doctrine of sanctification. It first says, if you, so there is a responsibility that we have, and we need to take that seriously in the Christian life. 
we need to mortify or to kill, literally kill the remaining sin that, that dwells within us. If you, by the Spirit, so it's not just us needing to do it in our own strength, pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps to try to change ourselves. It, we act, but we act in the power of the Holy Spirit if we, by the Spirit, put to death the misdeeds of the flesh. So we do it in His power. He works to help us to act. Galatians 5, 22 and 23 says, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. And Galatians 5.16 actually says, Live by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. We're called to really walk in the power of the Holy Spirit and to um, remember that the Holy Spirit is the one who acts within us to help us kill the remaining sin in our lives. We work in cooperation with the Holy Spirit's power. We work in the doctrine of sanctification in cooperation with the Holy Spirit. And um, it's important for us to note both of these aspects of sanctification. See, we work. The Holy Spirit makes it possible for us to live a holy life. However, we must not ever bear sort of a passive approach in this process. We are responsible before God to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Look at Hebrews 12, 14 in the language there. Make every effort to be holy. That, that language of make every, every effort is also in 2 Peter chapter 1. Make every effort to add to your faith goodness. Um, and then it lists a whole bunch of other attributes. But that making every effort, that accent there is on just the, the responsibility we have to to walk in holiness, to mortify or to kill sin, and to grow in Christ-likeness, to obey. Um, 2 Corinthians 7.1, Since we have these promises, dear friends, let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit, perfecting holiness out of reverence for God. So that language there of let us purify ourselves, there's, there's a responsibility that we have in the doctrine of sanctification, to become more and more like Jesus, and we have to own that. And um, it, it's it's my fault if I'm not holy. Um, you know, I can't just blame God and say, oh, you know, I'm not really holy because God's not helping me. God's always there to help us, um, and He will empower us to change, and He will enable us to kill sin. But but He works with us. And he works in us and with us, not against us or without us, as John Owen wrote in volume six of his work, Sin and Temptation. He works in us and with us, not against us or without us. And look at the language again of 1 Timothy 4, 7. Train yourself to be godly. Um, J.C. Ryle writes, Sanctification is a thing for which every believer is responsible. Whose fault is it if they're not holy but their own? On whom can they throw the blame if they're not sanctified or growing in holiness, but themselves. God, who has given them grace and a new heart and a new nature, has deprived them of all excuse if they do not live for his praise. Yeah, he has. He's given us every advantage and every everything that we need is provided by him. So doing this involves something we must understand, both our position and our practice of sanctification. Let's look at our position of sanctification through regeneration, we have already been set apart or positioned by God to become holy. 
sin's power has been broken and we're now able to overcome it. And Romans 6 explains this position for us and gives us two faith steps to standing in it. The first is to know. To know that we have been set apart by God. Romans 6, 2 and 6 says, We died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? For we know that our old self was crucified with him. Remember the doctrine of our union with Christ through faith, that our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. That's right, we died to sin. It doesn't mean we are incapable of sinning. It means that we are already dead to sin as the ruling force of our life. So before sin was the ruling force of our life, before we became Christians, we were under its dominion. But now... A true believer cannot go on habitually sinning. We're ruined for sin. We will never make a good sinner again because we've been changed. Um, 1 John 3, 6 and 9 says, No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. No one who is born of God will continue to sin because God's seed remains in him. He cannot go on sinning because he has been born of God. That's right. You know, Christians still sin, but they don't live in sin. They don't practice sinning the way they did when they were unbelievers. And that's the difference really between Christians and non-Christians. We don't pursue sin as a lifestyle any longer. We're new creations in Christ, and God's made us that way. So it's important to note that, that If you see someone who makes a practice of sinning or continues to live in a lifestyle of sin, they're living in sin, they can say, well, yeah, I believe, but that doesn't mean that they're truly Christians. If you're a Christian, you have broken away from the old life. You've repented. You've turned away from it. You'll still sin at times. And, you know, I I sin every day as a born-again Christian, but the difference is is that I'm no longer in the direction of sin. I'm no longer in a practicing lifestyle of sin. And that's just the mercy of God. And that that's the type of lifestyle that sets Christians apart from unbelievers. Charles Hodge says, when Paul says we died to sin, he's expressing in unambiguous language the truth that the person who is in Christ has made a definite and irreversible breach with the realm in which sin reigns. The second word there is not just to know, but to count. And Romans 6.11 says, In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Um, Count is a stronger term than we know. It means to cast something in concrete as a constant reminder to us. I love that. Count yourself dead to sin, or cast it in concrete that you're dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Isn't that awesome? The fact that sin no longer has dominion or power over us is not something that we are just to occasionally remember, but something that we are to always keep before us as Christians. Uh, William Hendrickson says a little further down in the quote, they must constantly bear in mind that they are no longer what they used to be. That's right, we're dead to sin and alive to God. We're in a winning battle. We are in a battle, but it's a winning battle because Christ has given us a new nature. We are new creations in Christ. The Holy Spirit dwells within us now. And um, even though uh, the flesh still resists us and we still struggle with sin, even as Christians every day, the good news is that dominion of sin has been broken 
even though the presence of sin remains. And, and he is sanctifying us. We are changing. We're being transformed more and more as the days go by from one glory to another, becoming more and more like Jesus. And I love pointing out to people. That's one of the reasons we have our small groups in the church, our care groups. I love pointing out to somebody in our small group that they are no longer the same person that they used to be. And that's why we need fellowship, to remind each other that we're different, we're changing, we're growing, and to keep encouraging one another, as Hebrews 3 says, as long as it's called today, so that we won't be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Um, you know, the devil's going to want to discourage us and make us think that we're, we're, we've never really truly changed and we're not really that different than who we used to be. But no, you know, that's where the vantage point of another Christian can be so helpful because they're going to say, no, you're so different than you used to be. And it can greatly encourage us in our Christian lives. And that's why we need each other for the Christian life. Uh, point two, the, the practice of sanctification. Um, our battle against sin involves action on two fronts putting sin to death or putting off sinful actions, thoughts, attitudes, and motives, and putting on holy ones. Um, these actions are known as mortification and vivification. These words were used a lot more um, by Christians of the past, but we need to recapture them because it's so important. Ephesians 4, 22-24 catches it. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. J.C. Ryle says, In justification, our own works have no place at all, and simple faith in Christ is the one thing needful. In sanctification, our own works are of vast importance, and God bids us fight and watch and pray and strive and take pains and labor now remember, that's in relation to sanctification, um, in relation to our justification. Remember that we are justified by the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross and his perfect righteousness and through his perfect righteousness alone. But when it comes to sanctification, um, our own works, our own efforts, we, we obey not in order to earn God's approval, but because we have his approval. So these are acts of obedience or works that we perform not for approval, but from approval. And that distinction is so vital. We are approved. We are standing in grace. But we act and we strive for holiness, remembering that Christ has already forgiven us of all of our sins, even the sins that we still need to be sanctified more in, we are perfectly cleansed. But we also see that God is calling us to a holy life to where we become more and more actually righteous in our Christian lives. So it's important to note the, the difference between justification and sanctification. Uh, mortification, let's look at the, the kind of putting off practices. Uh, mortification is the progressive killing of sin as it manifests itself in each rebellious and self-indulging habit. Sinclair Ferguson defines it as the deliberate rejection of any sinful thought, suggestion, aspiration, deed, circumstance, or provocation at the moment we become conscious of its existence. Um, John Owen wrote, Be killing sin, or it will be killing you. 
and that's a, those are stern words, but very important words because we need to take a real aggressive approach um, to be killing sin, um, to mortify sin. It's the consistent endeavor to do all in our power to weaken the grip which sin in general has and to weaken the grip of specific manifestations of sin in our lives. Mortification requires us, number one, uh, to be aware of sin and all of its manifestations, workings, and schemes. That's especially important since sin by nature is deceitful and it causes even believers to underestimate its extent and seriousness in their own lives. Uh, Jeremiah 17.9 is a great verse. The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? Um, our hearts are going to be deceitful and we need to recognize that um, we really need the power of the Holy Spirit to make us aware of where we're falling short of the Lord. And He will. That was That's the Holy Spirit's job, to convict men according to sin so that we might see our need for Jesus, but also the need for where we need to grow in holiness. Um, John Owen wrote, To labor, to be acquainted with the ways, wiles, methods, advantages, and occasions of the success of sin is the beginning to this warfare. And R.C. Sproul says, One of the true marks of our ongoing sanctification is the growing awareness of how far short we fall of reaching perfection. So if you're, if you're growing in your awareness of sin, don't look at that as a sad thing. Look at that as a very glorious thing because that's the work of the Holy Spirit, becoming more aware of how far short we fall. That might seem like a downer, but it's not, because what we see then is that, man, Christ has forgiven me of all that, and it also helps us to see, like, Lord, this is where I need to grow, and God's going to help you grow there. He's going to empower you to change, and um, we can't begin to change until we see that we, and, and until we're aware that these things are sins. And before we were blind to it, but God's going to make us aware of it and, and help us to grow. Uh, point two, we need to deal with temptation. Temptation's going to come to all of us, but giving in to any single temptation is never inevitable when it comes to a Christian. We must deal with temptation first by avoiding it, second by fleeing from it whenever possible, and third by resisting it when flight is not possible. Look at these passages. Proverbs 4. Do not set foot on the path of the wicked or walk in the way of evil men. Avoid it. Do not travel on it. Turn from it and go on your way. Um, Romans 13, 14 in the NES says, Make no provision for the flesh or the sinful nature nature in regard to its lusts. Colossians 3, 5. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. All these passages of Scripture are so wonderful, aren't they? Let's look at point three. Repent when we've fallen. There's going to be times when you're a Christian where you're going to, you're going to, you're going to see that you've fallen. You've fallen into sin. You've, you've given in to temptation. At times when we do sin, we must immediately ask God for forgiveness and immediately purpose to mortify that particular sin, to resist that sin in the future. Failure to faithfully deal with sin um, will make mortification all the more difficult in the future. So we need to, when we sin, like First John one nine says, we need to confess our sins and to take them quickly to God, to keep short accounts with God um, so that we don't uh, become hardened in those sin patterns and 
before long, you know, it's one of those things with sin, and I've seen it in my own Christian life, that you, tr- you if you give sin just even a little inch, it, it'll take a mile, and it just, it wants to grow, it wants to spread like a cancer inside of your character, and that's why we need to really take it seriously, and and talk about sin in our lives, and be aggressive against it. Um, the good news is, is um, later on in that verse, in 1 John 1, it says, um, Crossing over into First John 2, verse 2. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin, but if anybody does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Don't you love that? He's in our defense. He's our advocate. Hebrews 12, 2 and 3. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Look at Ephesians 4.27. Do not give the devil a foothold. Yeah, it's so true. I mean, the battle against sin's real. And, uh, you know, you've seen Christians who, you know, were walking strong in the Lord for some time, and then it just seems like they start to give in to temptations and to sin, and they think it's no big deal. And, and sin just... It's it's like that. It it's it does it's not like just an automatic like big huge rebellion against God and turning away. A lot of times it's one small step at a time uh, where someone drifts away from the Lord, and and that's so sad to see. That's so we need to like John Owen said, be killing sin, or it will be killing you. Marcy um, Sproul says, "There's no quick and easy path to spiritual maturity. The soul that seeks a deeper level of maturity must be prepared." for a long, arduous task. That's right. We need to put off sin and put on righteousness. We need to remember that it is. It, it's it's a daily battle. We need to die to ourselves daily, Paul said, and take up the cross and follow Jesus again and again and again. And each new day is like a new, fresh commitment to take the cross on our shoulders and, and follow Jesus in that spirit. And it's not a quick fix. Growth and holiness is going to just take time. And don't be discouraged because of that. Um, the second thing is vivify. We need to bring to life or vivify, which talks about putting on, putting on righteousness. Vivification is the inculcating and strengthening in us of all Christ-like habits. It involves finding out what's pleasing to God and then doing those things by the power of the Holy Spirit. Although we are not under the law as a means of achieving righteousness, God's moral law reveals his will and provides a standard for what holy living truly is. Um, we see that in Romans 6. We see it in Ephesians 4. Look at that passage, Colossians 3.12. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. And look at that passage there, uh, the J.I. Packer quote. We grow in grace by the deliberate stirring up and exercise of the new powers and inclinations which regeneration implanted within us. The Christian, therefore, must use the means of grace assiduously. I love that word. Hearing, reading, meditating, watching, praying, worshiping. He must animate himself to universal obedience in all-around, all-day conformity to God's revealed will. That's right. 24-7, 365. That's our goal, to obey Christ in that way. And he goes on to say, and he must persevere in it with resolution and resilience. Yet he must remember that the power is from God, not himself. And do it all in the spirit of prayerful dependence, or else he will fail. Um, you know, the Christian fight is a good fight. 
And we must remember that even in the midst of the battle, as hard as it ever becomes, we need to remember that God's got us and he's never going to let us go. We are going to battle against remaining indwelling sin until the day we go to be with Jesus in heaven. But the good news is, is that the dominion of sin has been broken. It's been crushed by Christ's death on the cross and his powerful resurrection from the dead. And now the resurrected Lord is the one who reigns over us and the Holy Spirit dwells within us. And this is a victorious battle. It can be intense, and it is intense. But God is going to give us the power to fight and to fight on. That's why we need to take church seriously, take the Christian life seriously, take growth and holiness seriously, all the while remembering that it's because Christ is so committed to his people, he's never going to let us go. He began a good work in us, and he's going to carry it on to completion until the day of Christ. Let's pray. Thank you so much, God, for sanctifying us and making us more and more righteous in our actual righteousness throughout our Christian lives. Thanks for doing that by the power of the Holy Spirit. Spirit, we thank you for empowering us to change. Thank you for saving us and calling us to a holy life. We love you, Lord Jesus. Thank you for dying on the cross and saving us from our sins. In Jesus' name, amen.